Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talk Gnosis After Dark. We are continuing our discussion on the Demiurge. Uh, earlier in our video cast, uh, we had an exciting discussion on the Demiurge and being joined for the first time by our producer. Hello, how are you doing, young man? I'm very well. How are you, Bishop Ken? I'm doing very well. For those of the who don't know, this is Jonathan Stewart. He uh, just uh, came into our program. It's been, what, about a month now? A month, yeah. Yeah, very good. And we've been very happy having him join the production team here. And as usual, being joined by Bishop Peterson as well as by Father Tony. Greetings, everyone. Greetings. You know, there was so much we didn't even get into on, <laughs> uh, on the video show. I mean, you know, I think we basically got into uh, what do we say <laughs> when people ask us about the Demiurge, our own personal uh, perceptions of the Demiurge. Uh, talked a little bit, I know Jonathan did, uh, about uh, some of the Jungian concepts, as well as his kind of rant on when people do the association of the Old Testament God as the Demiurge. That's um, bad. You know, but there's uh, a lot of things that, you know, we didn't even discuss. I mean, even like where the concept of Demiurge comes from. I mean, you know, the truth is this idea was not an original Gnostic thought. It wasn't like, you know, the Gnostics said, hey, let's come up with this idea of a Demiurge. Um, I mean, they borrowed this idea. It was uh, came from kind of Platonic thought. Um, they were definitely thinking about this way before the Gnostics were. Um, and I think that their concepts in many ways uh, are probably a little bit different. I, you know, taking a look at some of um, some of their ideas, I think that uh, Bishop Peterson, uh, you know, you hit it pretty well when you were talking about uh, uh, a little quote from Jordan Stratford's book when uh, you know, comes through meaning it's the craftsman or, or artesian. Um, you know, I think that is probably a lot more to kind of the Platonic idea than uh, I think most Gnostics would kind of define the idea of Demiurge. But, you know, there's just lots of different concepts in Demiurge. Um, Father Tony, we have not heard your opinion on the Demiurge at all. So um, I think we're going to beat you up and have you be the first one on the uh, podcast tonight. Father? I think we've lost Father Tony. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, dear. Well, we can well, have they, a lot of fun now, can't we? Yeah, oh, yeah. We can see all sorts of fun things about Father Tony now. Well, in, in you know, we'll come My back. My power in. was off. Aha! Uh -huh. uh -huh. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that was the Demiurge. At okay, was that the Demiurge or was that the Archons? No, I think uh, I just kicked it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you heard then my uh, my question. I did, yes. And I was answering you. Oh, okay. I was wondering why you were looking at me so funny. <laughs> well, I mean, funnier than usual, I guess. Yeah, well, uh, there you go. <laughs> no, so, as, you know, we really, uh, during the, the, the video show, really don't get to hear your opinion until after the podcast. So you get to be the first one we get to kind of beat up on the idea of the Demiurge tonight. Yeah, so I have a uh, I have an opinion. Um, and I'll share it with you right now. So, uh, <laughs> I, I do, I do like the way that Jonathan described kind of the, uh, the, the old Testament, uh, God slash Demiurge arguments, mm -hmm. right? I, I think that that's spot on. I think that there are parts of the old Testament where, you know, 
you can say that it's the demiurge and the parts of it where you can say that it's divinely inspired from from the pleroma or what have you and mm-hmm. there are some some of it it was just written down by some dude who uh, thought he had a good idea and wanted to write it down so mm-hmm. the all all of scripture is a wide variety of all of these things and that's our our kind of challenge to uh to navigate those waters i fall somewhere on in the middle i think of the whole argument cuz i do kind of want to believe in a uh an actual demiurge figure of some mm-hmm. kind um whether or not it's you know, a personified uh, lion-headed snake that sits in a cloud hiding behind a, a throne or whatnot. Uh, I, I don't know if that's literally true. I suspect probably not. Um, but I think that there are definitely forces that you can I, you can ascribe to the Demiurge and his Archons. And, um, you know, there are creative forces that exist that made everything. And, you know, why not call it the Demiurge, in my opinion? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's kind of where I land on all of that. I, I, I skew a bit more Sethian than a lot of other folks that I know in the Gnostic world, uh, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you know, you brought up Sethian, and I think that's a good point. I mean, uh, um, there seems to be, again, kind of a, a variety of opinions on, on the Demiurge. Uh, in fact, uh, Jonathan put a good note in our show notes, will the real Demiurge please stand up? Um, you know, so, I mean, we've got kind of that Sethian idea of the Demiurge kind of being the bad guy. Um, we've got sort of the neutral Demiurge, and then we've also got uh, kind of the idea of of the good Demiurge. So when you say that uh, you definitely fall more Sethian, you sort of see then the Demiurge in your perception is sort of the bad guy. Yeah. Um, somewhere on the line between bad guy and inept guy, I think. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, it's hard to ascribe kind of human moral values to something like this because there's a, you know, there's a whole, even if you take it literally, there's this whole level of, or several levels, I should say, of separation between us and it, whatever it is. And so to assume that it has the same motivations that we do is, you know, a, a bit silly. So mm-hmm. uh, all we can do really is look at it and say, all right, well, here's what the thing seems to do and what how it seems to be motivated and and you know let's let's create a story around that and that's what these things are i mean they're stories they're they're allegories in order to help us understand you know the world and our place in it mm-hmm. um, and and the demiurge is a is a tool as a you know he's a a plot point in those stories and mm-hmm. you can move around the you know you can change the edges of where the demiurge starts and ends um and and i think that's what a lot of the various gnostic groups over the years did i mean if you look at the if you look at the, con- the the concept of the demiurge from Plato on down to, you know, let's say Valentinus, um, the demiurge in Plato is the kind of mediator between the ideal world and the created world, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he creates as a reflection of that world of ideas, and he he tries to create something as perfect as he can. Of course, being a step away, he can't make it totally perfect, and so that's kind of how the Platonists got around the the, the problem of evil. 
the Sethians took that only just a little tiny step further where they said that it isn't a continuous line from the world of idea down to the world of creation, but there's a, there's a break, you know, and, um, uh, Jonathan posted on his Facebook page today a paper by April DeConnick that I had read years ago, but I had forgotten about. By, by who? who? Is that? By oh, who? you guys. Fan <laughs> of April DeConnick? Did you know her work, Father? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't aware of that. She's, she's before. a professor at Rice University. I think you would really like her. Rice so, University, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, she, yeah she, she has a really good book of the Gospel of Thomas called she, Seek to See Him. Oh, yeah. She's a Texan, yeah. huh? Well, I won't hold that against her. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, apologies to to my Texan friends. Um, yeah, so, uh, and she made an interesting argument for the, the Gospel of John to be kind of a transitional document somewhere between the Platonists and the Sethians, which is an interesting concept to me, whereas the, the, the Johannine Gospel didn't seem to have that break in between. But they still had a concept of that demiurge that was fundamentally the bad guy um, mm-hmm. that, that did this creating. And, you know, whether he created stuff, uh, you know, ex nihilo, as, as some people might ascribe to the Demiurge, or he just organized the stuff that was already there, which is, you know, a totally appropriate reading of most of the Gnostic uh, creation myths. Um, I don't think that's largely important, um, because I think that there's other ways that you can talk about you know, goodness getting into creation. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly the Gnostics had a couple of different mechanisms for that. Um, but the, the Demiurge as an, as an individual entity, force, whatever you want to call it, um, as I say, the edges change, but I think that the concept is, is fundamentally the same across all of the, uh, the various traditions that have a Demiurge figure. Um, and I, I would argue even the Cephian Demiurge, who's, who's the rotterdest of, of the bunch, isn't even evil in the same way that, say, Satan in, in mythology or recent mythology is evil, you know what I mean? He's, uh, mm-hmm. in, in some ways, he's kind of a sad figure. He's creating because he's lonely and because his mom hit him in a cloud. <laughs> he's, he's capturing this light because he uh, and he's creating these archons and he's he's screwing with humans because he he wants some he wants some company he wants to be loved he honestly thinks that he's God you know he's not yeah. I'm talking about the character again as I said I don't know if I literally believe this so so even even the rottenness of the bunch isn't isn't evil as perceived in dualistic good evil that that we sometimes think about yes but know. he makes very bad choices <laughs> he makes bad choices but who doesn't. Um, and yeah, that's just it. And again, I, I don't know if I believe in it in a literal, a literal demiurge, but kind of building on, on what on what Father Tony said, you know, that there is just the idea of the creative forces in the universe, whatever is organized in the universe, and is those creative forces. There's a split between them and the pleroma, between the all. So, and I don't know those if those creative forces, those organizing forces, are are conscious as we know it. Maybe maybe we're talking the laws of science. Who knows? Um, mm-hmm. But those creative forces, uh, uh, there is separation between them and and the pleroma, between the, the the true beyond. Um, is is the one thing I can I, I can uh, I, I can kind of say with confidence. <laughs> um, and then uh, where to take that next is, uh, uh, I have no idea. 
Well, let me uh, kind of change directions a little bit, guys. Um, something kind of in in some of our earlier notes that we didn't touch bases on during the show, uh, but I, I, again, would like to get kind of everybody's opinion on this, is that, um, you know, a lot of times in Western culture, and I think uh, probably a lot in, uh, in American churches, you know, there have been a lot of people who have been hurt by by Christianity and by the Christian religion in general, and um, and kind of this idea of this angry God of this demiurge, um, you know, is this a uh, is this a way to kind of open discussion for people who have maybe have been, um, you know, let's say estranged by uh, by traditional mainstream churches um, or you know what's your thoughts on this well one little nitpicky point there I you said and this is this is a phrase you hear a lot that people have been hurt by Christianity and I, mm -hmm. people haven't been hurt by Christianity people have been hurt by individuals who are acting in their understanding of Christianity and, and that's that's a different kind of thing and, and I, I can understand that there's a you know, there's a whole uh, generation of, of people out there who have been brought up in, in uh, you know, kind of fundamentalist um, uh, traditions that, you know, rebel against that. And even the more, you know, or the less, I would say, fundamentalist, you know, people who grow up Catholic and, and, right. and say, you know, that's not for me. I, I'm one of them. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I don't have any ill will towards it. But, you know the 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 idea of using the demiurge kind of or the the concepts of gnosticism as a tool as a recruiting tool mm -hmm. um which i don't know if that's exactly what you're asking but that's uh, it's something actually we were talking about this weekend that um you know i i think that if you're using the concepts of gnosticism to rebel against your uh quote-unquote orthodox christian upbringing it, i think it's a, a a lack of imagination on your part uh, mm -hmm. i think there's a lot more interesting things that you could use to rebel against those those traditions than you know gnosticism which uh, at its heart is interesting and uh, well obviously i think so but i don't think it's all that fundamentally other to these traditions that you know that you can look at it and say well, I'm going to show mom and dad. I'm going to become a Gnostic. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, and and using the using the demiurge as kind of the tool to say, oh, look at these stupid Christians. They think they're worshiping God. They're really worshiping demiurge. I mean, that's that's such a cartoony version of God that I, I no, I don't know of any. Christians who believe in the magical sky wizard who lives on a cloud and you know literally punishes people and and does that I you know that's what you tell your five-year-old when you take them to church for the first time that's not what you tell a 45 year old adult who is looking to expand their spirituality in my opinion yeah oh sorry go ahead Bishop I was just is thinking, uh, I mean, I, for me, the notion of the demiurge as I was emerging from fundamentalism was actually useful. I would not advise it necessarily as an, evangel as an evangelism tool, but for me personally, it was useful because it gave me a touchstone for questioning. And it was, okay, um, what God is speaking here in the Bible? You know, we have, as Brother Jonathan brought up during the video podcast, video cast, 
we have the, the Pro Old Testament prophets which are preaching a message of liberation from oppression, shaming the rich, shaming people who are in power. Um, and you, you have to read that alongside the passages where God tells invading armies that it's okay to kidnap women and rape them and make them your wives as long as you give them some time to mourn their families. Um, you know, it, you, these, 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 these passages are side by side. So it was helpful to have a notion of, you know, who is actually speaking in these passages. Who wrote, you know, who put these words together? Why, did, you know, why do we have these passages here? And is it possible that there is something out there that is, number one, speaking for God, but doing it in a very, in a way that is not liberatory? And number two, um, is it possible that this, is, that my own mind is choosing to interpret things or to read the Bible in a way that is, not liberatory, that is that does not offer liberation, and so for me that was actually a very important concept that there might be a God above God that that my concept of God may be way too small and may in fact be twisted. So for me it was a very important thing, but I would suggest that that might be something to bring up with somebody on a one-on-one -on -one situation. Mm -hmm. um, um, some of Philip K. Dick's books, that his uh, the Vallis trilogy, kind of get into that the idea of an isolated God, a, a God that's kind of isolated, um, people who are trying to communicate with God and and get past an empire, an evil empire that is imprisoning people. Uh, that for me was an amazing tale, you know, an amazing tale, and it, it, it has had a lot to do with my own spiritual growth. So that's, that's my take on it, as somebody who came from fundamentalist Christianity and had to listen to people defend some of the most hideous things that you can ever imagine um, as part of Holy Scripture. And to consider also the effect that this has on people. We've talked a little bit about fundamentalists. Um, recently, within some of the, the Calvinist community, there have been some well-known uh, Bible teachers who have talked about why um, it was okay for uh, the invading armies in the Old Testament to take wives against, take you know the enemy's wives against their will. Today it's a war crime. That doesn't, doesn't mean it doesn't happen. But was they, he, they would say he, he, these Bible scholars have defended that by saying that since the women were given time to mourn their families, that shows God's compassion. Mm -hmm. But these women were by right the property of the invading army. Now, of course, my thing is, well, Almighty God is giving instruction, mouth to ear here. If he's almighty and all holy, why didn't he just tell them, leave those poor women alone? And you've got a bunch of people who have developed a religion, and they're, they're active. They have churches. They have buildings. They have tenure-track appointments at, you know, at seminaries who defend this sort of thing. And that... That's incredibly twisted because it's a twisted theology that gives you a, an idea of a twisted God and therefore can produce some very twisted people. Yeah. The only thing that I'm surprised by with what you say is that there are tenure-track positions in colleges anymore. I, did, I thought those were gone. <laughs> there are a few. There are a few, although they're going the way of the dodo bird. Um, I, I agree with both, both you, uh, the Bishop Lady, and, and you as well, uh, uh, Father Tony, on, uh, on a number of different points. I, I don't think the, the Demiurge should be used as a recruiting tool. And I think we do, 
and, and you do see this a lot, you know, online uh, with some self-proclaimed Gnostics who are really, screw you, mom and dad, I'm rebelling, screw your God. <laughs> but, um, you know, to, uh, uh, to kind of say, um, you know, to, to back up what Bishop Laney was, was saying is, is you do have literally hundreds of millions of people who, who have these fundamentalist backgrounds who have been hurt by these, these crazy interpretations of the faith. And I think the the concept of the demiurge can be a healing tool. And uh, and Father, you said I, I think both you and I were lucky to grow up. I, I actually grew up in, in an extremely liberal, loving church, uh, and I mean extremely liberal and extremely loving. So I have nothing, I I have nothing to rebel against. Um, but the there are uh, again tens of millions of people who who believe in in an angry sky wizard. Uh, you know, an old man who lives on a cloud who is going to send a lightning bolt down if you touch yourself, or, you know, if you have sex outside of marriage, or if you're a woman who gets a job. Uh, yeah. Really, really serious things, and, and, and they're not fringe beliefs, they're very mainstream beliefs. So I, I think for people coming from those beliefs, the, you know, the, the, the concept of the demiurge, however you want to interpret, could be healing. And I don't want to say rebel, but it's, it's I, I think it's a, it's a useful tool for this idea of the God above God to kind of fight, I don't want to say fight on, but you know what I mean, to challenge this conception of the of, of the Sky Wizard. <laughs> I, I really love that description too, Father uh, Sky Wizard. Oh, yeah, I, I, can't, yeah. I can't claim that it's mine originally. I, uh, it, I forget who I read it from first, but it's a, it's a good description of you know, the, the Old Testament God, Jehovah, you know. As, yeah. I'm, uh, and smiting oh, people. And I have, I have one more one a one more point on that too is uh, and again for kind of the ancient Gnostics and, and mainstream Christianity does this as well uh, mainstream mainline whatever you want to call it you know kind of building what on what Father Tony said is is obviously you know the the the, the Christian tradition the mystical Christian tradition is, is beautiful and wonderful um, there's there is this challenge in Christianity Judaism and Islam against making idols and I think that's yeah. the, the demiurge is kind of the Gnostic version of that. And a lot of modern Christians and Jews and Muslims have interpreted making idols, of course, not to literally make an idol out of stone, but we make idols out of anything we worship, yeah. be it money, power, uh, control. Um, uh, but sorry, that, that was a digression. My, my other point is, 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 is they're not just challenging kind of the, the Jewish and Christian God. You know, I would argue that the, the Gnostics were also kind of looking at the gods of, uh, of, of Platonism and Neoplatonism. Uh, maybe uh, some people think that, that the Archons and the Demiurge have uh, aspects of the Egyptian gods as well, some scholars. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think that the, that the early Gnostics were looking at, at all of these, these subpar images of God and uh, at these idols and, and submitting a challenge to them, saying you gotta, you got to move beyond this figure you've created in your mind. Yeah, I'm... <sighs> So uh, Karen King, uh, in her book, uh, The Secret Book of John, The Secret of Revelation of John, uh, mm -hmm. talks about the comparison between, or the uh, rather, the reason why the figure of the Demiurge changed from Platonism to Gnosticism. And uh, one of the, the things that changed that was important was that the, um, the, the, the Platonic Demiurge, uh, as part of this system as a kind of part of the continuous whole um, w was put in place to, to put a block between the ultimate divinity 
and the creation. Because obviously, if the ultimate divinity is all good and all loving and all that stuff, then evil can't come from there. And in in Platonism, there's this concept, this kind of cause and effect concept that where you can look to everything as having a previous cause, mm -hmm. um, both kind of temporally and up the hierarchy kind of cause. And the the demiurge was put in place in order to be that the 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 buck stops here kind of end of the cause argument because otherwise it's turtles all the way down you know mm. so in in gnosticism that shifts because the ultimate source of divinity is referred to in apophatic and cataphatic and all these other kinds of various concepts that you know the it doesn't need to be separated I mean, it is separated, but it doesn't need to be separated for the same reasons as uh, in Platonism. There, you you can't, you don't necessarily need to point to the demiurge and say this this is necessary to prevent evil from getting back to the first source. You say this is where evil begins and goes down from there. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's kind of a just a, I guess a reversal of the way of looking at it is you know whether you have a top down or a bottom up approach. And, and the Gnostic bottom-up approach, to, to me, um, seems to kind of wrap the whole thing up in a bow and, and to say, you know, yeah, okay, so I can point to that and I can say this is where it, all the problems started. <laughs> and not that that absolves me from any responsibility. It says, okay, so that's, that's my goal. This is how I know how to get beyond where I am. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's not that some you know naked chick in a garden ate an apple, uh, and and there's nothing I can do about it. It's that okay, so this is just the way things are, but there's something I can do about it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, what's this discussion is always is really interesting to me. Um, in the oh, since 2008, I've been involved with the Gurdjieff work, uh, which mm -hmm. is um, the, also known as the Fourth Way. And it's a, it's, it's a spiritual system. But one of the things that I, I have been more attracted to in Gnosticism is the notion of the archons over the demiurge. Demiurge seems way too monotheistic for me. And I know that in some of the systems, the demiurge is just chief of the, the archons. Um, but I tend to uh, have this perception of the, the kind of confusion and the imprisonment as being, a, you know, that have a multitude. You have a multitude of archons, and they're kind of coming from all over the place. And in the Gurdjieff work, there's this notion that we are bound up by certain laws, and if you're operating at certain levels, you're operating under more laws. And as you can liberate yourself through work on yourself, you have fewer and fewer laws that you're having to deal with. And, and one of the interesting things about Mr. Gurdjieff's teaching is that he acknowledges the notion of human damage. Um, and Father Tony, I think, kind of, kind of you know, um, hinted at that a little bit. It's not about trying to foist off responsibility for your, your shortcomings, but it's an understanding that you kind of come into all this in a damaged situation. You're interacting with a bunch of damaged people around you. We have damaged systems. So it can be, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of compassion that can arise from this understanding. That this doesn't mean that you have a right to be doing what you're doing, a right to cause damage, but there's this notion that it's, you're malfunctioning. 
there's a malfunctioning there. And the goal in the Gurdjieff work is to become a far more aware of yourself so that you can work harmoniously and develop into what a human being ought to be. And I think that certainly we find some of that in modern Gnosticism as well. Um, so for, for me, um, the Demiurge or the Archons are one way of acknowledging damage the damage in both human in individuals but as well as communities societies governments and that can give rise to compassion and that can give rise to you know to to work yeah i, I think that's i think that's spot on i think that you know the idea that you know obviously you know nothing here is perfect and mm -hmm. you have a lot of work to do while you're here um and and you know, it, it doesn't absolve you from responsibility, but it, it is definitely um, it, there's work to do. But but it's 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 possible to get out of it, and uh, yeah, I I just like that. Yeah, it's um, there's a Calvinist some Calvin again. I keep on going back to Calvinists; they drive me nuts. Um, <laughs> but um, who were who were basically were online talking about domestic violence and they were saying that we actually you know that instead of telling women or and men who suffer from domestic violence that they don't deserve this actually they do have to understand that they do deserve this because we all deserve not only God's wrath but the consequences of sin and so and it was just this it was hideous they actually showed a picture that one of them had put up a picture graphic of a beaten up woman and it says you deserve so much more. The idea being wow. is that she deserves to be beaten even more. Um, and he said, now, obviously, it's wrong for somebody to beat somebody, but it's wrong because that's sinful behavior. But the victim deserves this. Wow. And if you think about that model, uh, what, that model of what humans ought to be or, or what humans are, is you have a model with absolutely no compassion. Versus a model that says, you know, abuse happens because of damage and we can have compassion for both abuser and abused, but also be stating, you know, that this, that the compassion is there as we recognize that the, the victim does not deserve this either because that is not what a human being ought to be. And I, you know, I remember just reading that and, and realizing just... Um, how certain models of religion can really produce people who are devoid of compassion. It's like the, it's almost like the secret, right? Like if you, if you don't think positively enough, you, you know, or if you, if you get cancer, it's because you didn't think positively enough, you know? It, well, yeah, and you'll see this in New Agers. There's actually, there's a meme I periodically see that goes around. It's kind of just this long little, it's a little paragraph that says, Everything that has happened to you is a result of your choices, nobody else's. So, in other words, your parents had nothing to do with this. The fact that your that your that you know that your parents didn't have any money and were fighting each other when you were a child and you were grow you grew up with violence and poverty, that has nothing to do with where you are. Um, this idea that we are we have uh, absolute responsibility for everything that happens to us is a fantasy. We, we we have we are surrounded by powers and principalities and authorities. We're born into into failable bodies, and um, I I guess what I would probably say is that I have absolutely no use 
for religious or spiritual uh, practices and beliefs that are devoid of compassion and that want to place all that power into one person so that another per so and usually because the person who comes up with these ideas or spouts these ideas uh, has a desire to not be compassionate and probably wants to beat the person up a little bit too so that's my rant <laughs> good rant yeah you know well one thing again um, kind of uh, change things around a little bit we've been sort of talking about the ideas of, of the demiurge of maybe being a lesser god of an unknown god of all these other concepts of the demiurge but another thing that sometimes gets thrown out there and so I'm going to throw it out there is the idea of the demiurge kind of relating to uh to the idea of the devil or Satan or Lucifer or whatever term we want to call, uh, um, you know, the evil one, if you will. Um, do you guys see any either a scriptural references to that in either Gnostic scripture or even of any reference that you could uh, point uh, even in, let's say, something like uh, the Gospel of John, which many of, uh, within the Gnostic traditions, have always pointed as being the most Gnostic of all of the Gospels. Um, the idea that the devil um, is actually the Demiurge. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> so here's the thing. I, uh -huh. I, I haven't read everything that's ever been written. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but by the April, April DeConnick you have though, right? I'm, I'm about to cite April DeConnick. <laughs> so <laughs> please stand by. I am a diviner. Remember that? Yes. Prop yes. So that article that I was reading that Jonathan posted today that I uh -huh. mentioned earlier, um, <clears throat> one of the reasons why, uh, the, this is often referred to as the most Gnostic gospel is because there is a, a pretty striking reference to, uh, to the demiurge in um, uh, in John eight forty four, mm -hmm. where um, you know the the line is um, you are from your father the devil. That is how it's often translated in 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 most uh, Bibles, not just in English but in other languages. To that this phrase is translated as you are from your father the devil. But if mm -hmm. you look back at the original Greek manuscript tradition, it's actually you are from the father of the devil. And the, this is, and then it goes on um, uh, further down at the end of the line. It says, um, "For he, for he is a liar, and his father is also a liar." Is how it mm -hmm. is. It, it reads in the original Greek. Um, and so this is kind of the, you know, this is a, a distinct, a, a distinction between the devil and the demiurge. That the mm -hmm. devil is the son of the demiurge in this case, or an, another archon, maybe a very specific mm -hmm. archon that does a specific thing. The the figure of the devil doesn't show up, for example, in the Sethian texts. Mm -hmm. um, uh, maybe some of them, I don't know. But <laughs> like I said, I haven't read everything. But uh, I, I think that the devil is a very specific and different figure in these mythologies. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, uh, you do see some completion much later in, in the sort of Gnostic tradition, somebody like the, the Cathars. Uh, I'm pretty sure that their demiurgic figure, uh, figure is, is the devil. But um, but I think in, in classical Gnosticism, the, they're very uh, they're very separate characters. And, and at the end of the day, um, you know, kind of going back to, to some of the father Tony said earlier, 
and and understanding these as, as myths and and um, uh, profound stories. There's nothing wrong with understanding them as, as literary characters, you know. And uh, I think you get a really you get a really profound, life changing perspective when you approach them as characters. So they're very they're very different characters and very different stories. But um, uh, but definitely later on, uh, the, I, I believe in the Cafars, it's it's very much you know the the, the devil is a demiurge. But uh, in, in the classical Gnosticism, I, I don't think it's really really something that the two encounter. And, and as I said earlier, the uh, the the, the demiurge is, is often much more likable than the devil. Yeah, and I think also there's you know there there's certain maybe some some qualities that they might share. I was looking at uh, the Gospel of Judas here, and in the section Cosmos Cast in the Underworld, we have, um, and look from a cloud, there appeared an angel whose, fla his fl whose face flashed with fire and whose appearance was defiled with blood. His name was Nebro, which means rebel. Others called him Yaldabaoth. Um, we, we oftentimes, in, in traditional Christianity, associate uh, Satan with Lucifer, this rebellious angel. The idea of Satan as this rebellious angel. So you've got a, you've got a rebellious angel here. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about was in uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, um, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Um, I know that some Christians will associate the God of this age or the God of this world with, with Satan. I'm not sure that's exactly who Paul's talking about there, but um, yeah, no, I think yeah. Paul's talking about the demiurge in that case in, in, in a very Gnostic sense, but that's just yeah. me. Yeah, um, I think the I think the notion of a demiurge makes some Christians nervous. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't see why not. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the the idea that the and it might just be the language. I don't know if. Because calling the demiurge the creator, you know, you see in in uh, you know mainstream Christianity so often the the word you you know we worship the creator, and then to say well the creator technically speaking actually you know and you push your glasses up over your nose and you say you know the the creator is <laughs> the creator is the uh, is is the is the bad guy and there's another god above that and it's like it's like arguing over comic books. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but going back to, to the Gospel of John, because I know it does come up on the show a lot, I, I think it's pretty amazing, and pretty amazing that, of course, this is a canonical scripture used by billions of Christians around the world for, for and billions of Christians for 2,000 years. Well, they had and, to write two letters to explain it, quote-unquote. Precisely. And it, but uh, I, I just find it uh, so amazing that it, it's not just gnostic -y, which is why I always saw it, but it, it is basically straight up Gnostic and the Demiurge is actually in their hiding if you if you believe the comic. So it's uh it's I think it's pretty amazing that we, we got we slipped that one in guys. <laughs> yeah. We got one past him. We got one past him. Uh Bishop Ken I, I want to ask you and I, I might be completely wrong in my notes, but but the more positive demiurgical figures in some of the esoteric orders like the, you hear about the grand architect of the universe. Like, would, mm -hmm. is that a good demiurge? I I would say that that would probably be one of yes, kind of one of the symbols of the good demiurge. Well, see, but see, I wouldn't call that a demiurge. Mm -hmm. You know, I, it's obviously probably just a question of of language and terminology. But mm -hmm. you know, when when you when you refer to the 
the great architect or the grand architect of the universe, you're not talking about a media, a media uh, um, what do you call it? I don't know, you're intermediary figure. You're talking about the universal divinity. Mm-hmm. So if if your system only has one god, uh, you know, and then there and then nothing or, you know, a bunch of kind of subservient figures and then man uh, with no kind of intermediary step in between, I don't think mm-hmm. you can call that a demiurge in my opinion. I respect that opinion. I think, though, in many ways, though, that even, um, I think, um, in systems that uh, use kind of this idea of the grand architect of the universe, I still think that in many ways that is, um, there is still a hidden God behind that grand architect of, of the universe, that that grand architect itself is not that essential essence um but maybe the first of animations so i i can sort of see the point where that can be kind of associated with a kind of uh kind of the good demiurge if you're using that you know that type of term um you know um but you know i I'll be honest, guys. I mean, I have a hard time with with the whole entire concepts of demiurge, you know, uh, to begin with, you know, because for me, you know, uh, like I sta- stated earlier, I think in the video show, you know, to me, um, you know, the line that I always use, you know, on everyone, the demiurge is ourself, you know, um, I see it as kind of our, uh, as our own, you know, being blind, but um yeah, I think that there's uh, you know lots of uh, lots of interpretations. I think we've been going through tonight, and I think all of this has been pretty fascinating. Um, there was something I was trying to reference. Um, we were talking a little bit about the Gospel of John, and Father Tony had brought up the Gospel of John chapter 8, but there was a reference I've seen in one of the other notes uh, that I was pulling up referring to John 4.21, but I'm trying to pull that up right now. Um, It was back to the devil idea, Uh, but there was uh, basically a commentary on 4.21 um, that says the mountain represents the devil or his world, since the devil was part of uh, the whole of matter, but the world is a total... A mountain of evil, a deserted dwelling place of beasts to which all who lived before the law and all the Gentiles are under worship. But Jerusalem represents the creation or the creator whom the Jews worship. Then are you then who are spiritual should worship neither the creation nor the craftsman, but the father of truth. Um, I'm trying to find a decent sounding translation though of that. The King James Version just doesn't do it for me. <laughs> So let me, and the complete Jewish Bible, I think, on this particular one isn't doing it well either. Let's take a look. Well, I've seen interpretations on that passage too. And, it, um, uh-huh. and, and yeah, I think you can look at it kind of in a uh, hillock, psychic, and pneumatic kind of a, uh, uh, kind of, uh, of a way. So mm-hmm. the... You know, the the Hillocks, you can say they worshipped in Jerusalem with the Old Testament God, quote-unquote. Um, right. The psychics worshipped on the mountain, and, mm-hmm. and but the pneumatics have kind of their own internal process, and, and they can, you know, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a stretch maybe, but 
you can see that the, in, even in antiquity, they're they were all kind of bagging on each other, and you know, <laughs> they're wrong over there, and they're they're wrong over here. We're absolutely right, and and we still do that today. <laughs> absolutely, and I think you know even the, I, I think you know you kind of uh, you know uh, nailed it, Father Tony, because you know I think if you start looking at some of the passages afterwards, uh, it definitely kind of points to uh, kind of those divisions as well. I have a question. I know we're winding up here, but I, I do have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, if a per- whether a person chooses to believe in a literal demiurge or whether they understand that there are demiurgic aspects to the way they relate to the world around them as well as to things of the spirit, what can a person do practically to uh, escape or escape or engage the demiurge in such a way as to uh, el- uh, you know, uh, eliminate the negative effects of the demiurge. I like to occasionally flip the bird at the sky. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I've wanted to do that a few times. Yes, <laughs> I, I've got I've got one for that, and, and and it's an easy kumbaya answer. But 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 I am big on that that idea of of, of the demiurge being cut off. You know, in his own world, uh, ruling his own world, being isolated. So, if we're taking this symbolically, how do we get past that? How do we get past that? If we're the demiurge, the answer is very easy. You know, we're sharing with other people. We're reaching out to other people. We're living in community of other people. We're helping uh, people, uh, and we're, we're entering their worlds as well. Uh, you know, we're we're leaving the the isolated reality where we've decided that we're that we're a god of and entering their perspective and their world and we're, we're helping them uh, and that's uh, and I think that's one way to um, or if not helping them just just seeing seeing through their eyes and I, I think that's getting getting rid of that isolation uh, uh, that uh, that the, uh, that the ego lives in uh, is is one way to to escape demiurgic forces and you know, if you if you think about these things as as influences, you know, the the family of archons. If you think of them as influences, mm-hmm. I I do believe that there is a way of removing yourself from these influences, and and whether that's just a, a conscious process of, uh, you know, kind of a mindfulness process, almost like you you're aware uh, when you're uh, reacting in a certain way that is outside mm-hmm. of your conscious control, for example, which is ninety nine point nine nine percent of what we do every day that. We, you know, we receive a stimulus and we react to it, and very, very few times does does our conscious thought process intervene in that. Yes. It's, it's more or less just a, you know, that guy cut me off in traffic, so I honk my horn and I yell. Yep. Right? And, yeah. And you do, and you do it without thinking. You do it because that's the pattern that has been set up in your brain. And so I think mm-hmm. one way of 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 breaking away from these influences is just through constant recognition or constant or trying to be aware constantly yeah. of these influences, whether you consider them external or internal or a combination of both or whatever. Um, they're they're real. The influences are real, and you can do something about it. It's very hard work, and it's mm-hmm. it's uh, a constant constant struggle. But I think that you can find a way to, you know, maybe not eliminate, but reduce the influences. You know, I think that is uh, some of the best practical uh, advice I've heard on that, Father Tony. I think that is uh, um, 
I could not have said it better. That was wonderful. I think uh, that uh, if our listeners was to take that advice at heart, uh, basically uh, getting rid of ignorance, getting rid of all of those kind of negative energies, trying every day to overcome something, I think that is just fantastic advice. I think, you know, Father uh, Tony, I, I don't know how much of Gurdjieff you've read, but you've hit on a lot of the work practices. I know. I, yeah, I, I haven't actually read any, but I have been exposed to an awful lot. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And, um, and I think he's thoroughly Gnostic, so. Oh, yeah, so do I. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that I'm really kind of excited about. It was funny. I spent some time outside the Gnostic community for a while, and during that time I got into the fourth way. And then when I kind of returned to Gnosticism, suddenly a lot of, more, a lot of things were making a lot more sense, both in the fourth way and in Gnosticism. So, yeah. Um, but I think that you, know, you hit on something, uh, Tony, Father, that we are so reactive and we, we get our buttons pushed and then we react because that's the way we've programmed ourselves to react. And I think uh, Bishop Ken and I have talked a lot about uh, spiritual disciplines and habits. And, and one thing that a person can do even very simply after a period of self-observation is to introduce new habits or changing up their routines. That alone can really help a person um, understand just under, become aware of the influences around them and at some point prepare themselves to escape. So I think that's, that's crucial. Yeah. Well, yeah. We're, uh, we're, clo- we're coming in on our closing time here. Does anybody have any final thoughts that they want to share? No, I think this is a great way to end the show, actually. <laughs> yeah. so. All right. Very good. Well, then uh, thank you all for... Uh, for your participation in this conversation. Thank you, Jonathan, for sitting in with us on the uh, actual recording side of it. (laughs) And thank you for all the work you've done behind the scenes that I don't have to do anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, and I hope to to do much more. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. All right, then. So for everybody listening along at home, we will see you next week. Take care. Good night, everyone. Good Good night. This has been a production of the Gnostic NYC Network. For more information about this and all of the Gnostic NYC Network's programming, visit GnosticNYC.com. The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Gnostic NYC, Talk Gnosis, or any other organization. This podcast has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License. Thank you.